Good evening, good morning. Uh, my name is Thomas Steininger. I welcome you to Radio Wolf, our weekly webcast for consciousness and culture. I'm very happy to have here with me Jordan Hall. Jordan, hello to Radio Wolf. Hello. Jordan, you are uh, here right now. It's morning time, your time in California. Thank you very much for joining Radio Wolf. We invited you because you are a very uh, uh, known thinker in certain circles for new complex complexity-oriented understanding of what's going on right now in the world. And you also have a very particular perspective of something that you call a meta-crisis. A meta-crisis that's uh, much more than uh, the corona crisis that we are in. I think it's also much more than the economic or financial crisis that we are in. And you have a certain insights that I find are very are important just to hear and to discuss because maybe they describe something of the background of the situation that we are in or at least allow us to discuss the background of the crisis that we are in because everyone is very focused on a virus at this point. At the same time, we are very aware that our financial situation is in a very precarious situation and most of us are very aware that our ecological crisis hasn't gone anywhere. But it seems to be that all these different layers of crisis are a part of one big picture. And the term that you're using, metacrisis, also talks to that, that there is more than just the crisis that we see. And I would like to have this conversation started with the question, um, when you talk about a metacrisis that we're in, what are you talking about? <clears throat> well, uh, maybe it seems to me that the, the thing that I would like to try is to is to go somewhat deep into that question. Um, but it seems to me before before we can go very deep, perhaps we should begin by um, doing some small things that are somewhat easier. Um, you mentioned, for example that there seems to be something more profound going on than just a, a virus, for example. Mm -hmm. And then you mentioned that there seems to be something more profound going on than just a, a financial crisis or just an economic crisis or the relationship among these three things. Okay, that, that begins to move us in the direction of the notion of a, a meta-crisis, that the, the insight or the premise is that if we if we scratch at the surface of most of the the kinds of systems that we tend to use to make society work mm -hmm. things like education or food um, or urban design or um, parenting and family or money um, we will begin to notice that most of them, in fact, in many, in many ways, all of them have significant challenges, which is to say, what I would say is that they are, they are close to, they are vulnerable to um, being in a state of, of crisis. And so that's the first part. So the first part is that the, that most or all of our social systems are close to being in a state of crisis. Um, and the, this fact is, is implicative, meaning as we've seen, uh, these, these systems are not isolated. They are connected to each other mm. and a, a an event that occurs like for example say a virus that comes in and and hits us at the medical level spills over mm -hmm. into the financial level spills over into the political level spills over into the psychological domain and so the the fragility the the lack of of richness and robustness in each of the subsystems is made all the more significant by the fact of their being so tightly connected, such that what might ordinarily be 
only a minor crisis in one area may in fact become a crisis, a larger crisis in another area, which then may in fact spill back to the first. So you get feedback loops. Uh, in complexity, this is called a, a, a cascade failure. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe a little bit more on that because we can use some nice visual metaphors. Um, if you if you visualize taking a, an hourglass and turning it upside down and watching the sand fall, you'll you'll you've probably witnessed if you've ever done that that the grains of sand tend to pile on top of each other and pile on top of each other, and until all at once there's a, a, an avalanche of some magnitude and big chunks of sand will slide down. And then they'll pile and pile and then big chunks of sand will slide down. Now, if you look very closely what actually happened, um, there was a weight building and there's a bunch of sand particles that are sitting on top of other sand particles with a certain amount of, of friction holding them. That's the energy that's holding up the weight as the weight hits, one sand particle breaks beyond its capacity to hold. Its friction is not as strong as the weight on it. But as soon as it's no longer holding weight, that weight spreads to other sand particles. They break, and you get a whole cascade failure into an avalanche. Mm. So that's a very good sort of simple example of the notion of a cascade failure. Now, if we return that back to what we're dealing with, we have at the first level of analysis, we have a very large number of subsystems, meaning things that we could normally speak of as just being their own thing, that are very linked together in, by the way, complex and highly unpredictable ways. It's not just a simple you know, linkage this way. It's, it's a rich mesh that's difficult to know exactly what the implications of. Um, you know, I live in, in the United States, so I have a much cleaner experience of what's happening here. But the implications of a, of a mass quarantine Okay, well, what implications does that have for our food supply chain? Mm-hmm. Very difficult to know. And then suddenly, oh, it turns out that dairy farmers have to waste, get rid of, of milk because X, Y, and Z reason. Um, wheat seems unaffected. In fact, seems to be getting cheaper because oil prices are going down. And uh, slaughterhouses are shutting down completely. This would have been very difficult to predict beforehand as the complex linkages. But then we can go up to a, to, to one level higher in abstraction and talk a little bit about why. So we can now begin to get a bit, a bit deeper into the inquiry, the notion of a, of a metacrisis. And there's a number of reasons why actually that I've been able to discern myself, and I'm sure there's a number more that I haven't even begun to scratch the surface on. One that I think has landed quite heavily is how would I call this? It's almost like monocropping. We've been we've been monocropping our mm-hmm. social institutions, which is to say that specifically making more efficient economic optimization has been an increasingly dominant language I want to use is from evolutionary theory, an increasingly dominant selective function, Hmm. increasingly dominant design constraint or a force that has shaped our social institutions. And so one of the characteristics of economic optimization of seeking for efficiency is that efficiency and resilience tend to be uh, in tension. The more efficient I make something, the less resilient I make it. Mm-hmm. The metaphor that I've, I've found very useful here is in, in evolutionary theory, the metaphor of the, um, the saber-toothed tiger. That as it becomes more and more optimized for a particular niche, it becomes more and more vulnerable that a small change in the niche actually kills it. It can't elegantly shift to being a slightly less saber-toothed tiger because it's become so optimized for that very specific niche. Such is the case for our, our global society. We've taken things and we squeezed out the, the resilience. And, and of course, not all of us, but as a dominant uh, theme. 
So one characteristic of the metacrisis is the degree to which this dominant theme of optimizing for economic efficiency has so thoroughly um, shown up in all of our subsystems. And this mm-hmm. creates that lack of resilience everywhere, which makes the, the, the connections between subsystems look like systemic fragility instead of systemic resilience. Mm-hmm. It's okay to optimize in some cases. In fact, it's a great idea. It's important to optimize in some cases, but it's also important to maintain resilience in other cases so that if one piece breaks, other pieces don't break. Mm. I feel like, feel like now we may actually be able to have the conversation that we're supposed to have. Mm. This is enough, um, frame, mm. my particular frame and the language that I use and the ways that I think about things to begin actually asking the more meaningful questions. No, thank you very much because listening to you, uh, uh, the image that arises from what I hear from you is that our, we are in a global situation where the interconnectedness of our, of all the subsystems that you are talking about and even, even more so are at a, a rate of interconnectedness that we never had before. In, in, and this seems to be something that seems to be a, a, a new reality that we are launching into, already in the middle of launching it. Also. At the same time, what you're characterizing, there's one subsystem and its optimization, uh, which is a particular, as I understand you, economic optimization that has uh, developed its ownness in a very monocultural way and has become a dominant force in something that has optimized, but in itself, uh, by doing this, uh, also uh, um, lessens the capacity to be resilient in, an, in, a, in a particular ecosystem that we call world. And that uh, we are at a breaking point where this one system optimization and the more and more interconnectedness of all the systems that we ecologically in, ecologically, I mean also human ecologically, psychological ecology, all kind of ecologies, that something seems to be at a breaking point where as it used to work, doesn't work anymore because somehow the game changes. Is that what you're talking about? Very much. So as you've, as you've been speaking, a bunch of different images have popped into my mind. So I think we can go, we can go, we can go more. We can now do more. Um, at this same level, this level up here, uh, where we put the, the object of uh, efficiency, optimization. Actually one level above it. So now we're three, we have three levels. This is good. Um, how would I say this? I'll use, I'll use language from the 1980s, actually. So I think it's right. Uh, the dominant paradigm, for the dominant social paradigm, and to some extent the dominant psychological paradigm, um, has, has reached its limits. So let me, let me expand on what I mean there. And before I go there, I want to just create another useful tool. I imagine that most of your listeners are familiar with the story of Copernicus and the story of Ptolemy and the notion of a uh, a geocentric, the Ptolemaic geocentric model of the solar system and of the universe and the notion of the epicycle. And so I have a model mm-hmm. and I'm, I have the Earth at the center. And I have a story that talks about how each of the planets and stars orbits the Earth. And my model works okay. But as my experience of reality shows that my model isn't quite right, I have to change the model a little bit. Mm -hmm. I have to add an epicycle. I have to add a slight more. But after hundreds of years and after thousands of years, what had originally been a relatively simple model, is now this vast, complex uh, machinery that has all sorts of crazy epicycles flowing through it. It's a very heavy, big thing. And only a small number of people on the planet could even hope to try to figure out how to make it work at all. And probably no one really knows how it works. Mm-hmm. Okay, now. Between 1914 and 1946 or 47, the the sociological, the political, the economic, and in many ways the psychological models, paradigms, 
that had been stewarding how at least the West, in many ways the world, was doing its thing, doing human mess. How do we make food and how do we heal the sick and whatnot? Um, had been very heavily destroyed. The period between World War One and the aftermath of World War Two was a period of significant uh, breaking and change and growth. In the period after that, starting in the late 40s and through to the 1970s, was a period of an establishment of a new paradigm, a new mechanism, a new set of tools, and most importantly, a set of institutions and ways of creating institutions. So I have an institution, but I also have a way of creating an institution. I have a toolkit for creating institutions. Um, in, in, a, in, an, in an essay that I wrote about five years ago, I, I referred to this as the blue church in the sense of the Christendom, the church of the, the Catholic church prior to the enlightenment was uh, a paradigm, part of a paradigm. And I referred to the object that began, that, that more or less controlled, and I don't mean this in the most negative sense, but ma- managed, governed somewhat effectively the West and therefore largely the world, but certainly by the late 80s, the world, the blue church. And the blue church has, as any paradigm, it has habits. It has tendencies. It's like a toolkit. You know, so if I have a, my toolkit has hammer and a screwdriver in it, then everything is going to look like a nail or a screw. Um, and as the, the paradigm of the blue church over the past 40 or 50 years has found situations that didn't quite work well, it's had to add epicycles and it's become more and more complicated. And it's a very heavy thing that very few people in the world have any idea exactly how to do anything with it. And probably no one really knows how to make it work well because it's in many ways past its due date. It's like, it's like old milk. And this, this feeds into the meta crisis in two very distinct ways. And I think this, this is why I had to tell that story. On the first hand, um, it's what holds the, hmm, three ways actually. It's what holds the subsystems that we have as they are. So the notion that we think of say, finance as being a certain kind of thing. It has banks, for example. Finance has banks and it has money that works in a certain way. And that education has schools that work in a certain way and look like a certain thing. Well, this paradigm, this blue church paradigm is the meta system that makes those subsystems look the way they look and holds them, constrains them. If I were to say to you, Thomas, imagine a way of doing finance that didn't have banks. You might be able to, you're a very creative individual, you might be able to begin to imagine it, but imagining trying to accomplish it, you begin running into the fact that, well, in ordinary times, you'd have to convince the government to do that, which means that you're now moving from the finance domain into the governance domain because the governance domain constrains what kinds of possibilities there are in the finance domain. It holds it together in a certain way. It's like the scaffolding of what this space can look like. So it creates the, the meta structure that, that constrains the relationship and relationships between the subsystems. One. Two. This characteristic of ec- economic optimization, um, as it turns out, is one of the most powerful games that was available in the blue church in the paradigm that has become our dominant paradigm. And what I mean by that is, you know, like when you, when you, as a child, very, very first played the game tic-tac-toe, it was nearly infinite in potential. And the notion that you put X's and not smiley faces and O's and not squares and that you could only put them inside the, you know, initially the nature of the game was quite mysterious. But after a little while, it became very clear what the nature of the game was. The structure became evident. And then after a little while, it became very clear what the, what the valid moves were. And then, of course, the game was done. In the case of tic-tac-tac. Well, what I would propose is that in the 50s and the 60s, the game of the dominant paradigm that we live in now was relatively unknown. It was open. Many people were trying to figure out what it could and couldn't do. 
By the time you got to the 70s, it had become known. And one of the moves, one of the, the most, the winning moves was money on money return. The move of economic optimization. Mm-hmm. And, and therefore, that particular move has found itself cascading and circulating through all of the subsystems that are constrained by the dominant paradigm because it's one of the moves that is central to the essential, uh, meta moves inside the dominant paradigm. All right. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And then, then we have the third. And I think the third is what is most relevant to this particular forum. Because it has to do with consciousness. And it has to do with psychology, which is, to my mind, it's a subset of consciousness. Because in the context of, of the dominant paradigm that we're in, in the context of the blue church, as I mentioned, there's a sort of, of constraint or a scaffolding that holds together what finance is and what education is. And, and that constraint happens in, in two very distinct ways. It happens at the level of our, of our design imagination. If we try to imagine a way of accomplishing an objective, trying to do something, we will default. Our unconscious response will be produced for us by the dominant paradigm. Because it's the easiest answer. As adults, as children living in this world, it has been impressed upon us to the point that it just becomes habit that if you want to get money, you go to the ATM machine. Or if you want to buy things, you give them your credit card. I remember when we moved from cash to credit cards and exactly how that shift occurred. I'm sure you recall as well. Um, And maybe you never did. (laughs) There's a small number of people who didn't make that change. And of course that, that those habits are even more meaningful when it becomes larger structures. When you think about when you try to just even imagine when I say the word education, broadly speaking, one cannot help but have a, a whole structure implied, a whole set of implications of what it feels like to be sitting in the chair in the classroom, where the teacher is and what the textbook looks and feels like, because of course it was your embodied experience and that embodied experience of the whole possibility of what could be was replaced with the actual experience of what was and therefore the constraints on what could what 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 seems like it could be if i if i may come in here with a question because uh i i really like uh the comparison uh, with the uh copernican turn and the ptolemaic worldview uh, of, of of the medieval time uh, because it's it's very obvious uh, the way to describe it there was a certain way we, we saw reality uh, it was the earth, the earth was flat and there were the, the stars and the sun around it and it kind of worked uh, and it, it made sense uh, and as you described, it became, uh, we became aware of some irregularities and it became more and more complicated and it became more and more complicated to hold the old view for the new kind of uh, questions we are, we are asking it didn't work anymore, it became very much dysfunctional Yeah. So my, if I relate this uh, uh, example that you're bringing, because this seems to be kind of uh, the, the, the epicenter of the meta crisis, at least it was the epicenter of the meta crisis uh, from the medieval time to modernity, uh, uh, where something broke down uh, and something different opened up, which had a, to do with a completely different understanding of how reality works and what reality is about, and even uh, what makes us think about what reality works. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, why I like this uh, image because it, it, it's very obvious that there's a cer- certain way how this world looked like in the medieval times. And uh, it's very obvious it looked different uh, starting with Copernicus, with Newton uh, and uh, uh, Descartes and all this, these people. It, it started to look different because they had different ideas about it and, and something changed dramatically. And you, when you bring this to what you're describing as the blue church, the economic system that established itself in 1945 and that really where it is high in the 60s and became more complex in the 70s and had some particular change in the 80s uh, until it hit some really big wall uh, at least 2008, let's put it that way. Uh, uh, the question I would like to ask, uh, as you see this, 
how does the world look like from that perspective of the Blue Church? How does the world look like uh, when you see it through the eyes of the Blue Church? And why is this perspective come, becoming dysfunctional right now? Mm. Well, so the, the, the thing I, I feel I want to say first is that what I'd like to do is just try to venture an answer to your question. But I'm not proposing that what I'm about to say is particularly insightful. And what I'd hope is that just by putting something out there, it can begin the process of responding to your question more fully. So the first thing that comes to my mind is the world looks like something that needs to be managed. Mm-hmm. That, what I say, is at the very center of the blue church is a managerial consciousness, mm-hmm. a mind that that builds the kind of mind that can create, uh, take us to the moon. Mm-hmm. The kind of mind that can take a problem and manage the problem, break it down into its pieces, understand how each of the pieces can be optimized, build it back up into a system that we can track and measure, and then gives us more of what it is, whatever it was that we were optimizing for. Um, in some portion of the world, this is called a six sigma mind. In, if I recall correctly, in the last half of, of the, of the American side of World War II, uh, it was called operational management. Can't remember. The, the story was that, um, inside the War Department of the United States, mm-hmm. there was a small number of people who were using statistics mm-hmm. to study what kinds of military strategies were the most efficient. Mm-hmm. And noticed a number of, of, of strategies that seemed like a good idea actually weren't by using statistics to model it. And, you know, after the war, that same, that, that insight percolated out. Building managerial, how would you call it? Meritocratic bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. How do you find the best people and then give them bureaucratic institutions to manage? To do the best. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Think about medicine. You know, the, 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 the obsession of the blue church is to, to manage the problem. We want to create a vaccine. We want to create tests. We want to trace. We want to track. We want to control. We want to know what is happening. We want to build that knowledge into some system that we can understand. We can control the system. We design the system. Mm-hmm. And then we want to use that to achieve our desired results efficiently. Mm-hmm. That feels like that's a, a decent swing at the problem. I just wanted to say, I mean, particularly when you bring it back now to the actual corona crisis, uh, this seems to be a very decent way to go about things, to try to kind of... Uh, with statistics, with numbers, with understanding, understand basically what this pandemic is about, uh, and uh, find how this virus works, and find a way how we can counteract the virus with the vaccine, and then somehow find a way how to produce it for for for, for a reasonable cost, and then basically hit it and defeat it. Uh, right. Problem uh, complete. So, sounds like a decent thing to do. Uh, <laughs> Uh, it sounds like exactly the right thing to do. It sounds like to not do that would be obviously yeah. criminal. So uh, if this is the perspective of uh, of the poor church, this let's let's call it mental mental consciousness. I, I mm-hmm. kind of like that, and I think it it, it makes the point. And the institutions and their methods. It's called science, and the particular ways of science, statistical science, are, and and their institutions who hold that. Uh, in, in in economics, uh, in in universities, and in the, in the media. Uh, hold this as a perspective and it creates a manageable world uh, that's held by kind of, and that's my basically I think the word of church is also good. It's held by kind of a circle of enlightened people uh, who mm-hmm. hold the wisdom of, and the knowledge to do that and create the trust of the, uh, of, of the, not the, just the institutions, but uh, the trust of the, of the populace and yeah. that they do the right thing and create a consensus so that the right things can be done organized uh, and found that, uh, technological solutions for the problems of the world uh, as we, we do it. Um, 
particular, if, it, if, it, if we talk about Corona crisis vaccine, it uh, sounds like a reasonable thing to do. Uh, but I hear you somehow that the perspective in itself uh, has run out of its course. Why? Yeah, yeah. Well, let's, I want to highlight one thing that was in what you said, but I, I want to make it more explicit because it's also a part of what's happening in a very important way. So you said special people or enlightened people. And what I would say is something like there must be an official authority in this, in the context of managerial consciousness. Mm-hmm. We must have an official authority. There must be some specific institution that is responsible for making sense of what's happening and designing the choices. Ideally, it's effective. <laughs> Ideally, it's a competent official authority, but it's crucial that, it's, that there, it exists. So, for example, I think yesterday or the day before, uh, Susan, the CEO of YouTube, uh, announced that YouTube will censor, will take down any videos that are contradicting the official pronouncements of the World Health Organization. And this is a very blue church. It's a very managerial consciousness thing to do. We have an official authority, the World Health Organization. We must fully attend to, defer to the sense-making and the choice-making of that authority for Mm -hmm. this system to work. Okay. Of course, that's crucial because, well, let me see if I can make this very smooth. Hmm. How do I say this in a way that is simple? Ah, ah, okay. One of the characteristics of the world in which we live is that it changes quickly. Mm -hmm. The relationships that can occur uh, change at a pace that is just not comparable to the 1950s and the 1960s. Mm -hmm. Another characteristic is that it's very complex. The, the, the actual number of relationships that are is very large, and therefore the, the ways that cause and effect and flow um, is very large. And again, I don't mean to wave my hands that the word very needs to be you know, some very nice, large, m- many-syllable German word is probably right. Super double plus, super massively, enormously large. <laughs> um, and this is important. I think as, uh, I think Stalin said that quantity has a quality all its own. Uh, the, the managerial consciousness is not prepared, is strictly incapable of operating in an environment that changes at this pace and is at this level of complexity. For example, it cannot foresee the consequences of its own actions. You make a choice. Look at the the poor leadership of the United Kingdom. They, They initially thought, based upon their institutions of, of understanding, that the right choice was to, I think it was called, Herd immunity. Herd immunity, yes, right. But the right choice was herd immunity. And so they began to make that choice. Then they began to discover that the the exponential growth, perhaps, by the way, perhaps, and that the, the fact that I have to say perhaps several times is evidence of what I'm saying. The epistemological uncertainty of the the virus itself even even up to and including the possibility of it actually being a causal agent is enormous. Mm-hmm. Um, nonetheless, we have a narrative that, that their institutions of understanding came back with a different story not too long after, a week, two weeks later. Think how fast that is in bureaucratic time. Mm-hmm. And the entire nation had to pivot 180 degrees. Mm-hmm. No, no, shelter in place. No, not just shelter in place, but you know, all the way to the edge of quarantine. Oh, but the consequences of that action includes among the long list of consequences that the economy suddenly just implodes. 
which I'm sure, and here's the key, many, many people predicted that. But this managerial consciousness is looking at the world through a very narrow telescope. There's only so many people who can be in charge at the official institution. It's not collective intelligence. It's a, a hierarchy that takes certain kinds of intelligence from the bottom, can only send a small amount to the next level and a smaller amount to the next level and a tiny amount to the top. The top now is responsible for understanding all of this and trying to make choices and cascade out. And as the choices cascade out, the consequences of those choices become more and more complex. So the, the architecture, the underlying fundamentals of the nature of the design of managerial consciousness cannot respond to things that move this quickly, cannot respond to things of this level of complexity, and generally speaking, creates more trouble than it resolves by not being able to predict the consequences of its own actions. Okay, let me come in here, because uh, the way I hear you, uh, and it's it's a complete oversimplification, but anyway, uh, 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 it seems that uh, basically what is a crisis right now is a very simple thing. The world is not manageable anymore, period. Yeah, well. And uh, the crisis, as I understand you, in the end, is a crisis of sense-making. And choice-making. Sense-making and choice-making, in a way that the mental way of creating sense and choice, which you call the Blue Church, becomes dysfunctional, and this hyper-connected, hyper-complex, and, 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 and also high-speed reality that we are in, needs a complete revolution of sense-making and choice-making, which is beyond uh, the silos of the Blue Church, but somehow a self-organized process of, of collective sense-making that we are just in the process of inventing what it is. Yes, yes. And that maybe this, if it's not the crisis itself, but this is a core part of the crisis, that basically the way we make sense and we make choices have old habits that you call the silo habits of the of the Blue Church, and they're they're, they're very functional in the 50s and the 60s, and they became problematic in the, problematic in the 70s, 80s, and and oh, you don't have to go into the details, but something does not work anymore. And one way to understand what is not working anymore that comes from a certain understanding of being manageable by kind of a, of an elite a process of of sense making that allows a top-down understanding of, of what reality is and then basically pulls it out to the world and pulls it out uh, uh, to, to, to our society. And what uh, this is not working anymore and what maybe is on the verge of working is something that works in a completely different way because there is no center to it. It's highly connected. Uh, it, it's, it's highly communic communicative. And the sense-making works in a completely different way because it's a collective endeavor that has no center. And we haven't figured out yet how to work this. Is, yes. is this something that kind of put, uh, is related at least to the, 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 the your understanding of the crisis and the metacrisis? This is more or less it, yes. That, I mean, I think you, you, you've said it very well. Um, I nod my head at, at all the words that you've said and all the meaning that you've conveyed. Um, one of the things that I feel like I want to add is um, our our... The managerial consciousness, the blue church, engage in, a, in, a, in an unfortunate amount of what I would call bad parenting. Mm -hmm. Because we should have been learning this new way in the, in the 80s and the 90s. And beginning somewhere in the middle of the 80s, we should have begun the process. We should have begun the process of learning this new way. Um, the millennials, you know, the, the, People who are now turning 40 and are as young as 20 should be already quite skillful at this. This should have been their, their developmental environment should have been this new way. Mm -hmm. But we were held back. We were um, helicopter parented by the, uh, by the blue church and constrained into the old way. And so instead of getting skillful when there was plenty of time to do it in a new way, instead we built more epicycles. Mm -hmm. um, so we are unfortunately rather behind the curve. 
we're behind the eight ball. We have to mature rapidly in this new approach, quite rapidly, perhaps nearly instantaneously. <laughs> um, because the pace of change continues to accelerate mm -hmm. and the complexity of our environment continues to grow. Um, and therefore the, uh, the, the bad combination between uh, immaturity and incapacity in the context of the blue church continues to create more trouble. Mm -hmm. And, and as all of our attention and our choice making, our sovereignty flows through those channels, we are not taking responsibility for sense making and choice making. Mm -hmm. And, and the sense making and choice making that's being produced for us is increasingly delusional, increasingly mm -hmm. separated from re what reality actually is. Mm. So that would be the last piece of what it is I'm trying to say. Yeah, and this last piece seems to be related to a different layer of the problem, which is, which is also a generational problem and a problem of cultural habits. Mm -hmm. Because the kind of habits uh, of a hyperlinked reality is uh, are habits that we are just in the process of learning as we become uh, uh, citizens of a hyperlinked reality. Basically, I'm talking about the digital natives who who are kind of socialized in a completely different reality where uh, the good or the bad, things like Twitter, Facebook, and, and, and everything are part of my identity. And uh, my old understanding of learning are, uh, doesn't fit in this part of reality anymore. And we have to find new ways. And there's a, basically, there's a whole habit that has to break down that, be, that comes from a, let's call it pre-digital reality. Yeah, yeah. Well, I would go even further. So, what I would say is that, um, again, somewhere in the mid-80s, we should have begun the process of breaking down analog habits and building digital habits. Mm -hmm. and, the, and the reason why I wanted to bring that up is that the um, – you knew the, the stories of, of, of Victorian England, the stories of, of sort of urban squalor? Um, well, one of the reasons why urban squalor was urban squalor was that cities grew before we had built a consciousness of city. People moved into cities and whole problems emerged while we were still operating in a, in a mindset that was not appropriate for cities. Mm -hmm. We just didn't understand the, the environment. Well, a mature digital consciousness would not have allowed Facebook or Twitter to happen mm -hmm. to us. The, the obvious toxicity of those environments would have been dismissed out of hand as being obvious foolishness to, to, to cause Why? an entire generation of children to grow up in that toxic environment would have been absurd to mm -hmm. any mature consciousness, any mature digital consciousness. We would have said, are you kidding? That's absurd. That's like having children smoke cigarettes at the age of six. It's, it's, it's madness. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, it is madness. So now we're dealing again. This is what I mean by behind the eight ball. Our, Zoomers, Generation Z, they're not just adapted to digital consciousness, they're adapted to toxic digital consciousness. They've grown up in an environment which is not just digital, but the digital environment was never well parented, never well stewarded. It was not mm -hmm. created in the context of maturity, it was created in the context of um that terrible combination between authorities controlling things using old models mm -hmm. but not allow and also not allowing so how do I say this right the control mentality of managerial consciousness that evolved in an analog world squeezed too hard in some places and not hard enough in other places and didn't mm -hmm. understand how to manage this new environment so our digital commons are are we're getting a double whammy. That's what I'm trying to say. The, mm. the kids who should be mature aren't. And the kids who should have been grown up, growing up in a mature environment are actually growing up in a toxic environment, which is even worse. What makes the toxic environment toxic? What's, what's the toxicity about? Let's see. Hmm. Actually, the, 
the best example would be to point you to a video that I watched recently, a piece of art. The art actually conveys it the best. Mm-hmm. But it has to do with, let me just take Twitter as an example. Um, in, a, in a direct conversation between people in analog space, mm-hmm. if you and I are in the same room communicating, mm-hmm. um, there's a very large amount of constraint on what's, what's available in that conversation. Mm-hmm. Positively and negatively. You can read my body language. You can read the tone of voice. Um, you can read the, the way that other people are responding to get more information and nuance about what's being expressed. And there's a lot that I can't get away with. Um, and there's only so many people I can communicate with in an analog mm-hmm. consciousness, an analog environment. You know, there's only so many people in the room. In the digital environment, all three of those things are gone. In principle, I can communicate with as many people as I can seduce into paying attention to me. I can get away with anything, including the most bald-faced lying and simulation I can possibly imagine. And you can't understand anything I'm saying, more or less, particularly when it's happening in text. So think Twitter or Facebook. There's a reason why the leaders who have begun to emerge in the West are the kinds of people that they are. They're saber-toothed tigers of this toxic digital environment. They've identified the appropriate moves to make. Garner attention as much as possible, no matter what. Bad and good don't make any difference. Attention is the currency. It matters not at all what you say. And there are no consequences in the future for what you said in the past, more or less. And in, in understanding anything of nuance is strictly impossible. So don't even worry about it. So we get a, a the toxic digital environment is purely simulacrum. Ah, Baudrillard. We have Baudrillard. Yeah, so the toxic di- digital environment is a deep dive into the simulacrum across all people, mm. particularly the young. So the young have lost a capacity. And by the young, I mean you know, 17, 18, 19 all the way down, live in an environment where simulation is much more real than reality could hope to be. Mm. And the simulation is in a simulation around, and just think about how many hours people watch TikTok. To, to be is to produce those things that are copied. To be is to have been copied. To be real is to have been copied, for example. I mean, uh, it's a much big question for the end of a conversation or getting to the end of a conversation, but it has to be asked anyway. Uh, so what's the response to this? Mm-hmm. Yes, I think we have four minutes. It can take a little, a couple more, but uh, ah, the response is courage. That's the why? first response. Why? What? Courage for what? Yeah. So the, the metaphor, the visual image that popped into my head, and this is yeah. a story that um, my friend Jimmy Wheel was telling me. Um, so scientists were doing a study of mice or rats. And what they noticed was that the xiphoid nucleus in the brain, that the fear and freeze response mm-hmm. is fundamental. But the xiphoid nucleus is even more fundamental, which is the the turn and fight, the, the, the willingness to, to face that which is challenging, that which is, makes mm-hmm. drives fear. It's actually more fundamental, which is to say that courage is a more fundamental emotion than fear and mm-hmm. anger. You can't think clearly in fear. You can't act clearly in anger. But with courage, you can begin the process of not being reactive to your environment mm-hmm. and not lashing out at your environment, right? Which is another form. The fear version is to be mm-hmm. thrown about, tossed about. The anger version is to lash out. But if you have courage as, as a root emotion, you can stare the crisis directly in the eyes. Mm-hmm. You can listen to the story of the meta crisis and not look away. 
not go into uh, you know, unconscious reactivity or into delusion. Yeah. There's one other piece I just want to bring in, the, in, in into conversation and see uh, how you respond to that. Because there's also something about this interconnectivity uh, in the Facebook reality that is very much related to the manageable consciousness that it created. Yeah. Yeah, and you you could call it manageable interconnectivity because it's related basically yeah, uh, as a manageable systems of logarithms. Yeah, yeah. And I want want to counterpose this with a livable uh, interconnectivity, where uh, the the reality of of of, of aliveness and, and human living interconnectedness in its multi dimensionality comes into the picture. It changes uh, what interconnectivity is about. Dramatically, uh, yeah. that uh, allows collective sense making to basically leap beyond this managed uh, uh, connectivity of I stay with Facebook to something that's emerging between us as we connect as human beings in uh, networks of relationships, but living relationships. <laughs> Yes, the, the thing that I've seen that seems most close to this, and I feel very good about it, feels very powerful, um, are, are being called digital campfires. Mm-hmm. My, my friend Brett Weinstein told the story of, of consciousness, in fact, is not held in an individual. We don't, we're not conscious as individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're, we're conscious in groups, and, and we're most conscious in groups sitting around the campfire. That's the place where consciousness really landed in humans. And this new creation is ideas of digital campfires, groups of people coming into groups of five, three, 30 in, in, a, in a space that has the feeling of a campfire and then getting up and moving to the next campfire and creating this mesh of campfires beginning to flow and evolve is creating a space for a much, for a truly larger consciousness, vastly larger. Jordan, uh, it seems like just the beginning of a conversation, but we also are at the end of our time, uh, I would like to also make it the beginning of a conversation. I think we, we, we should continue at some point this, but I, I really like that you landed in, in the very end because we were talking about coronavirus. We we're talking about metacrisis. We we're talking about the blue church, mental consciousness, and we we're talking about interconnectedness, but the digital campfire that you are bringing in right now. And you just touched on it. I mean, there's uh, basically it's just a starting point of something. What is this? Mm-hmm. Uh, but my intuitive response is that there's a lot of an answer to this, that uh, an answer that we have to engage in collectively to find even out what it is. Uh, in that sense, uh, thank you so much for this conversation. Perhaps we'll see each other at the next campfire. See you there. <laughs>